Suri, are you ready to record? I'm ready, Caitlin. Okay, go. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. This is Siri. I don't know the answer to everything, but I do know this. The best way to listen to Planet Money is to download their new iPhone app. You can get it in the App Store. It's awesome. On with the show. My only goal is to see when I'm Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Caitlin Kenny. Today is Tuesday, July 24th. Today on the show, we've got three stories about people who manage money. The people in the first story try to keep what they're doing with the money secret. And our second story is about people using money to get others to do what they want. And in our third story, we've got a group of people who realize they don't have as much money as they thought they did. This is a special three-in-one show. We've got three great stories all about those people behind the money that is coming up today. They've aired on the radio, but we have never before put them on this show. Our first story is something that's been in the news the last few weeks. Presidential candidate Mitt Romney has been asked a lot of questions about his investments recently. And the answer that he always gives is blind trust. It's in a blind trust. So basically somebody else manages my money and I don't know what they do with the investments. I don't have control over it. It's not in my hands. Which got Robert Smith wondering, like, what does that mean, a blind trust? It's a weird idea that you hand over your money and you just say, do what you want with it, and you have no control over it. So Robert wanted to know, just how blind are these things anyway? Well, it depends. Because there's all kinds of blind trusts. Ones that are cast into complete and utter darkness, and then there are the trusts that are more nearsighted than blind. I'll tell you how to figure out the difference. But first, how do you get one of these bad boys? I called a lawyer. You don't have to be a politician to have a blind trust. Anybody could set one up. Would you want one? I don't know why you would. Most people who have any kind of wealth are interested in how it's managed. And blind trusts, because they're blind, you don't know what's going on with your money. Ken Gross has helped presidential candidates set up blind trusts. He says it's complicated, expensive, and generally a pain in the butt. But blind trusts do have one crucial advantage for a politician. It makes for an easy answer to a conflict of interest question. Mitt Romney used it in the Republican debates earlier this year. My investments are not made by me. My investments for the last 10 years have been in a blind trust, managed by a trustee. Of course, if you go this route, your opponent has an easy retort. There's a video going around of Mitt Romney from 1994 when he was challenging a rich candidate with a blind trust, Ted Kennedy. The blind trust is an age-old uh, a ruse, if you will, which is to say um, you can always tell the blind trust what it can and cannot do. So which one is it? Blind or not blind? Well, all trusts are not created equal. Federal election rules require fairly tight ones. State rules, not so much. I called up a trust lawyer, Colby Wallace, in Portland, Maine, and asked him, how can you tell how blind a trust really is? His advice? First, look at the person who runs the trust. That's the person who's supposed to keep all these investments secret. If that person is a friend or a relative, then it's really easy to imagine that they're not exactly keeping things secret. From a cynical perspective, it's like, yeah, nonsense. You're over at the pool at the house on Sunday, and you guys are talking freely about this, aren't you? The second way to judge a blind trust is to look at what went into the trust at the very beginning. If you got rich from, say, starting healthcare companies, then became a senator and put those companies into a blind trust, guess what? 
they're probably still there. And just because it becomes a part of a blind trust doesn't erase it from your memory. Memories that might just pop up during a vote on health care. The third way to evaluate a trust is what kind of reporting the trust makes back to the politician. If the candidate gets a fairly detailed report about how many capital gains or dividends or interest, they might just be able to figure out what's going on. Based on the reports that come out on an annual basis, the trustee might tell them exactly what's in there. But Colby Wallace says that once you get up to the presidential level with federal laws, this cannot happen easily. So what does all this mean for Mitt Romney? His blind trust is run by a longtime financial advisor, Bradford Malt, who might have learned Romney's likes and dislikes by now. If he were elected president, the campaign has already conceded that Romney would need to have a stricter blind trust with an outside firm running the money, not an advisor. All these different rules mean a lot more work for people like Ken Gross, who consults on blind trusts. But still, he tells his clients, Frankly, I don't like blind trusts particularly. Wait, wait, what, what do you mean you don't like them? <laughs> uh, I think uh, politicians are too quick to say, oh, oh, just set up a blind trust. He recommends that politicians who don't have a ton of complicated investments should just put their money in vanilla index funds and bonds and tell everyone exactly where the money is. That's the route President Obama has taken. Most of his investments are in treasury bonds and mutual funds. Planet Money is Robert Smith. Okay, on to our next story about people who manage money. This group of people, they use the money they've got to keep countries in line, to get them to do things that they want, things these people in other countries don't want to do, things they might hate. The group of people with the money is the European Central Bank. And as we've talked about so many times on this show, the European Central Bank is basically the best hope for getting Europe out of the economic crisis it's in right now. And lately, the ECB has been saying, you want our help? You want our money? We'll fall in line. Zoe Chase has this story. Economist Alan Blinder used to work at a central bank, the U.S. Federal Reserve. And he says... Central banks don't usually like to use brute force. The central bank is normally contemplative, slow-moving, intellectual, and very polite. But they do have one magic power. They can create money, something that a lot of countries in Europe right now really want. And the central bank is the only place that makes more euros. And so, says Jacob Kierkegaard with the Peterson Institute, they're using this power to extract concessions from the countries in Europe. Throughout this crisis, the ECB has provided financial support only when the governments have committed to hand over more of their national sovereignty. Did you get that? The ECB only gives you money if you give up some of your independence. The ECB says, for example, to the Greeks, you can't collect taxes the way you're doing it. It's ridiculous. You've got to get better. To the Spanish, your government can't spend so much money. You've got to cut back. Because it is so uniquely powerful, the ECB has actually been able to force European politicians to do a lot of the things that they otherwise wouldn't do. Examples. One, August 2011, the Italian government could not find many people to lend it money. And it went begging to the ECB. The president of the ECB sent a letter over to Italy to Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, a secret letter that was leaked online a few weeks later. And that letter basically said to Berlusconi, look, we would really like to support your government and Italy in the financial markets. But in order to be able to do that, here is a very long list of domestic reforms you need to do. Italy eventually adopted the reforms. The ECB did help Italy out. 
As part of the process, Berlusconi was forced to resign, and economist Mario Monti took over the country. Blinder says it was a pretty bold move for a central bank, particularly this one. I was mainly surprised that they were as frank as they were about it. First of all, central banks are not usually frank. That you don't associate frankness with central banks. <laughs> Secondly, within the world of central banks, the Europeans are low on the frankness scale. It's a low standard, and they're low. Nevertheless, example two. December last year, again, various southern countries scrambling to borrow money. The European governments make a fiscal pact, promising to cut spending and, crucially, send each of their individual budgets to a team in Brussels for approval. And then, without much fanfare, the ECB comes through with the money. Here's Jacob Kierkegaard again. You basically waited until you had the right politicians in in power. And the debt crisis quieted down for a bit. Recently, though, it's heated up again. Also in the last few weeks, the ECB has launched a new campaign. Lately, every time a governor from the ECB appears in public... They have all talked about the need for a banking union. And what is happening now in Europe... No longer will Greeks run Greek banks and Italians run Italian banks however they want. Now there will be one regulator in charge of all the banks across the continent. Now, it could be dangerous to force countries to the brink in exchange for the money they need. On the other hand, a lot of these changes they're making are changes many observers say they've needed to make for a long time. If you are running the risk of being insolvent, well, you know, maybe you could start to think about these things. The European Central Bank didn't want to comment for this story. They don't really like to discuss their plans. Their actions speak for them. But with this new centralized banking union, the ECB seems to have once again pushed these very different countries closer together. Planet Money's Zoe Chase. All right, on to our third and final story in today's show about money management. So this is a story about some of the biggest money managers in the country, state and municipal pension funds. And Caitlin, this is your story. So why don't you set it up? Yeah. So we've all been hearing for a while now that the state and local pension funds are in trouble, that they might not have all the money they need. I mean, the pension funds themselves even say that they're underfunded by about a trillion dollars. But now the news is that things are about to look worse. And the reason they're about to look worse all comes down to this one accounting change, a change in the way they calculate how much money they have on hand today versus how much they've promised to pay out in the future. This change is about to make that gap look much, much bigger. Okay, let's play the story. Here's the question that everyone has for Matt Smith. He's the state actuary in charge of Washington State's retirement system. Does the state of Washington right now have all the money it's promised to pay retirees up till this date? No, it does not. It has two two plans that are not 100% funded. Translation, the money there right now won't grow enough over time to meet the promises the state's made. That part isn't new. What's changing is the way that number's calculated. The Governmental Accounting Standards Board, GASB, sets guidelines for how state and local governments report the finances of their pension plans. GASB is changing the way governments calculate their pension liability. Their change gets at this fundamental question. How much money is enough? The way you answer that all depends on this single number. It's called the discount rate. Joshua Rao is a professor of finance at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business. You know, there's that uh, William Carlos Williams poem, So Much Depends on a Red Wheelbarrow. (laughs) Well, in my world, it's so much depends on that darn discount rate. Right now, most cities and states use a number around 8%. They assume their investments will earn at least 8% per year. 
Dave Urbanic is the director of communications for the Illinois Teachers Retirement System. He says there's a reason we use that number. We set the rate of return based on history and practice. The TRS assumed rate of investment return is 8.5% over 30 years. And over the last 30 years, our actual rate of return has been 9.3%. But Josh Rao, that professor, says just because it worked before doesn't mean it's going to work again. What the public sector accounting is doing is it is assuming that that history of having done pretty well will continue indefinitely in the future with certainty. It does not reflect the fact that there is a lot of risk, that it might not, and that these assets might not perform well. The Governmental Accounting Standards Board seems to agree. It's changing the guidelines on what that discount rate should be. Under the new guidelines, some cities and states can no longer use that simple 8% number. The rules get complicated, but in certain situations, they'll need to use a much lower number, a rate as low as 5%. And the number you use makes a big difference. A pension fund that seems okay with an 8% expected rate of return doesn't seem so great at 5%. And if you're a pension fund that is already in trouble, this change is the last thing you need. Take Illinois. The Illinois Teachers Retirement System already has less than half the amount it's promised to pay current and future retirees over the next 30 years. Here's Dave Urbanic again. At the end of fiscal year 2011, our uh, unfunded liability was 53.5%. Keep in mind, that number was calculated under the current guidelines, 8%. Under the new guidelines, Urbanic has this analogy. I mean, what's happening is that I've got a burn on my arm. EMT tells me it's a third-degree burn. I go into the doctor's office in the emergency room, and he tells me it's a fourth-degree burn. We have a problem. Depending on how you calculate it depends on how big the problem is. Urbanic worries this change will undermine people's faith in the retirement system. Gasby, the people who set these guidelines, they say it's time to lay the cards on the table so everyone can see them. They say changing this number doesn't change economic reality. It just better reflects what that economic reality is. Caitlin Kenny, NPR News. If you want to get a sense for how different these pension plans might look, you can go to our blog, npr.org slash money. That's right. Boston College's Center for Retirement Research has done some number crunching to figure out how these changes from GASB are going to affect pension plans. And we've got a graphic up based on their numbers. The bottom line here, very few retirement systems are going to look healthier. You can find that at npr.org slash money. And as always, we love to hear from you. You can write to us at planetmoney at npr.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Caitlin Kenny. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.